Southern Soul Livestream is a weekly talk show and music hangout where the hosts learn your name and just might remind you of a favorite relative. We spotlight fascinating people, discuss current events, and pay special attention to lifting up generations. So if you want to know more, learn more, be more, or just be, Southern Soul Livestream is the place for you. Join us every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Just log on, kick back, and experience the eclectic vibe. Check us out at soullivestream.com. This show is like one of my favorites because, you know, we, we actually are continuing the theme of health. New year, do you, health. And what better opportunity to talk about not just the good side of health, but the challenges. I remember when um, DJ dropped his book last October and I hit him up. I'm like, man, you got to get on the show. You know, you, you, you got to talk about this. And the first thing he said, let me know when. He was ready. And I'm proud of this because I went to school with this guy in Nashville, Tennessee, and I had no idea he had these experiences. So much so that over some 30 years in counting, he has revealed his soul through this book for us to begin to learn from his experiences. And I found it to be an awesome community moment. So without further ado, DJ Jones. Welcome, brother. Welcome. Welcome to um, Southern Soul. Thank you for being us tonight. Feel free to say hello to the people. Good evening. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation. What's up, family? Like you said, this is DJ Jones, and I bring you greetings from my homeland, the Democratic Republic of Brooklyn. All right. So I just wanted to say what's up and share a little bit of my story you're looking at the new me. You know, he's known me for 30 plus years, but for most of the time that he knew me when we were back in school, I was someone who looked completely different than I look today. And real talk, I shouldn't even be here today. Let me tell you a quick story about the old me and you'll understand why. The old me, as I went through my 40s, His health was a wreck. He had type two diabetes, high blood pressure, and he was on the verge of going blind from a condition known as diabetic retinopathy, thus the glasses. And uh, just after the age of 49, early last year, that guy had a stroke, but he made himself a promise. What he said was, that by the time he reached age 50, by the time he blew out the candles on his birthday cake for age 50, he would turn it all around. And guess what, y'all? He kept his promise. My 50th birthday was two weeks ago, and I am diabetes-free. I have lost roughly 70 pounds since the stroke last April. I was able to get out of the hospital And it took me a while, but I learned to walk again. And I am working on some other things. One of the things that I accomplished since then was writing and publishing my book, 
beating diabetes, which chronicles my road to sickness and the path that I've taken to wellness. There was a time when my A1C, now A1C is the clinical marker of how poorly you've managed your blood sugar. My A1C was at one point a 12. And when I went in the hospital back in April, my A1C was 9.6. Now, according to the Centers for Disease Control, any A1C below 5.7 is considered normal. 5.7 to 6.4 is considered pre-diabetes, and 6.5 and higher is considered full-blown diabetes. Now, consider again, my blood, my uh, blood sugar, my A1C when I went in the hospital was 9.6, and at one point it was as high as 12. So you can tell that I was a very sick dude, and my body was showing signs of it that were getting worse all the time. I was on the verge of going blind. I see an eye specialist, and the first time I went to see him, at our first appointment, he let me know that on a scale of one to five, with one being full normal vision and five being blindness, I was at a four. And that's all because of the damage that was being done internally by type two diabetes. Well. And so it's been my mission since I've recovered to help other people do the exact same thing. One of the things that I learned over the past year is that unlike I had been told for decades, Diabetes is not a chronic progressive condition. It's not something that once you get it, oh, you got it forever, you just gonna have to take this medicine until you die. You can control it, you can turn it around by changing your lifestyle. It's a lifestyle disease. Basically, diabetes is hyperinsulinemia, and hyper means too high, and insulinemia means a condition related to the release of insulin in your body. So when you eat too many carbohydrates, you trigger too much insulin and after a while your body begins to rebel and it does things like, I exercised, I cut my calories back and I could not lose weight for the life of me, I could not figure it out. It's because I had so much insulin in my body and insulin is a fat storage hormone that was gifted to us by our ancestors as the human species was developing in times before there was a Walmart and a ShopRite and a Pizza Hut and a Wendy's everywhere, mm -hmm. they had to develop a method naturally for storing energy that they could later use. And so when it was time to eat during those feasting cycles, when a hunt was successful or a foraging expedition was successful, you would eat enough to pack on fat for energy storage, knowing that you might go two or three days before you had another meal because nothing was guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And so the use of whatever carbs you could find helped you to store that fat on your body. But because we constantly eat carbs in the form of bread, rice, potatoes, and pasta, mm -hmm. you know, when I think about all the sodas that I drank over the years, when I think about all the Baconators that I ate at Wendy's, all the Biggie fries that I ate, 
all the quarter water that I drank. Mm-hmm. I constantly had carbohydrates flooding my system, and I constantly had insulin being expressed by my pancreas and putting myself in a position where I could not lose weight. I could not lose fat because the master hormone in my body that controlled the regulation of energy, which is insulin, prevented that from happening. It barricaded the door to fat loss. So, And so regardless of what exercise I did, regardless of how far back I cut my calories, my body was in a state of fat storage and could not get rid of it. And in between times, because I could not make use of the energy that was stored, my brain and the rest of my body demanded more calories mm -hmm. and even more pancakes and even more muffins. So DJ, let's, let's, um, let's um, go back for a second. Think, you know, I, I want to say thank you and give you your flowers. I'll tell you why. I remember when I showed up at Vanderbilt, you were that guy that, you know, was always, you know, organizing, helping people get the message, get the word, right? Vandy's a PWI university, but we also call ourselves, you know, we got our HBCU flair, right? And I remember how we got it, right? We had the BCC and we had people like you who were always helping the people think about certain things. I was from small town, Texas. People just didn't think about those things where I grew up. People didn't organize to create a better life. Back then, people just went along with the flow. But you were that guy that was sharing information. I remember many times we would meet up at the house, we call it. We didn't have a fraternity house. We had this house. And we would get there and we would talk and we would have these experiences. And what I see you doing then is what you're still doing now. You're sharing the information for the people. So I want to give you your flowers and say thank you for that. But let's go back and tell you the story. Because if I go back in your story, tell us about the beginning. I believe that one of the reasons I was put here on this earth is to be what I like to call a wounded healer. Mm. And so the struggles and the things that I've gone through, God is using to provide deliverance for other people so that they don't have to go through what I've gone through and deal with things to the extent that I have. And I feel blessed that God would use me in any way, certainly in this way, to be a blessing to other people. And so when we were undergraduates at Vanderbilt in Nashville back in the 90s, I, for most of that time, weighed more than 300 pounds and at my heaviest got up to roughly 350 pounds. And I did not know it then, but I'm sure that by then I was heavily insulin resistant and diabetic. By the time I, I left school and moved back to New York and started working, I got my first job and got my brand spanking new medical benefits and actually got a primary care physician. And that was the first time I was diagnosed as a diabetic. But because of the way the medical profession deals with diabetes, even now in 2022, the things that I was told about my condition didn't really help me. Even now today, you can go and see a dietitian and they will tell you that in order to improve your diabetic condition, in order to quote unquote manage it, you need to eat a certain amount of whole grains, 
And a lot of this teaching is based on the received wisdom of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which still puts out its food pyramid. I'm sure we've all seen the food pyramid. Mm -hmm. If you've ever gone to a public school in the United States, you've seen the food pyramid on the cafeteria walls. And you know that at the base of that pyramid is the whole grains and things, which basically is just pure carbs. And so the received wisdom that we get from the medical profession tells us things that are counterproductive to having a healthy life based on eating things that will provide us with a healthy uh, body. Mm -hmm. For someone like me, who grew up as a fat kid, who was a fat teen, and skipped right past being a fat young adult because by the time I turned 18, I was already 300 pounds. So I was morbidly obese. Mm. The advice that I got over the course of more than 20 years of being a diabetic put me on the road to an early death. And it certainly kept me in a place where nothing I did to help myself was really a help because I did not clean up my diet because I didn't know any better. Let's talk about some things you did. I learned better. I could do better. And that's what I've done. And I thank God for that. And I want to share and tell the whole world what to do in order to turn it around. So let's talk about some of the things you did, because in reading your book, I was impressed with the amount of effort because you weren't some guy who wasn't trying. Right. You were actually trying to do the thing that they tell you to do. Tell us about some of the things you tried that didn't work and tell us about that moment. I'm calling it your YouTube moment where you began to do things differently. Okay, so my sweetheart and I put together a menu where every day we would eat our three meals and each of those meals was things that we thought were healthy. We would have our salads, we would have a lot of vegetables, we would have lean meat, and I was having a protein shake. I was having something called super greens because I wanted to make sure that even though I was cutting back on the amount of calories I was taking in, that I did not miss any vitamins and minerals that I would need in order for my body to perform at the highest level. It's only in the past year that I discovered that the manufacturers of those products, the, the protein powder that I was taking and the super greens included an ingredient called maltodextrin. And maltodextrin is a sweetener, an artificial sweetener. So it, um, has zero calories, so you don't have to list it in the bottom line for the overall carb intake. But what I found out only recently was that maltodextrin has a higher glycemic index than table sugar. Wow. So every morning when I would get up and drink my protein shake and do my super greens, it would send my blood sugar racing up and trigger the release of a bunch of insulin. So then when I would go out to exercise, we would either go to the local junior high school track and run, or we would walk through my neighborhood, or we would go to the boot camp class that we signed up for and have our boot camp instructor run us through the mill for a half hour. And I would leave there 
so sweaty that it felt like I had been pushed into a swimming pool. Despite all that activity, I was losing only a fraction of the weight that I thought I should be able to lose with the way I was eating and the level of activity I had. And the reason why that was the case and the reason why I was so frustrated was because the triggering of all that insulin every morning ensured that my fat stores on my body were locked away and I was in fat storage mode before I showed up to boot camp, before I showed up to the track, so that none of the energy stored on this body could be made available for use by my muscles or by, or by my organs that needed it, including my brain. You know, that, that, that's real. Go ahead. And so if you do that, going faithfully to boot camp, getting up and walking two or three miles every day or going to run on a track. And I hate to run, always have, but I would get out there and do it anyway. So after you've done that for two or three seasons, you've seen spring come and go, summer come and go and fall come to the point where you it's too cold to go out to the track anymore. And you had hoped to lose 50 or 60 pounds, but you lost maybe like 18 or 19. You get to the point where you throw your hands up in the air and say, What's the point? There's no use. I'm just going to be fat for the rest of my life. Why kill myself trying to do this when I'm destined to be an obese person and I'm, I'm just broken? Yeah. Not knowing that the things that I thought I was doing to help myself were actually serving as a hindrance. Well, you know, thanks for sharing that. Last week when we did the vegan show, I told the people, I'm like, hey. I know y'all consider these vegetables and all that, that sophisticated stuff. But next week, come back because we're going to talk about how hard it is to make good choices. So here you are. You're conscious. You're aware. You're physically active. You're getting your protein in. But still, some kind of way, sugar is being, let's say, sweetener, things that trigger your insulin, is being snuck into your diet in a way that it is often affecting what you do. And I, I like that story because it's tricky. And we talked about how hard it is. So tell me this. Tell us about the promises that you have made. And, and I call this, you know, the, the moment of aha moment, right? You find yourself, you know, you've conquered diabetes, right? You're still fighting the battle, but you've made some promises to yourself. What are the promises that you made to yourself and why? My first promise was that, number one, I am going to reverse this diabetes if it kills me. Like um, 50 Cent said, get rich or die trying. I'm going to get diabetes free or die trying. That was my goal. Along with that, was my goal and it's still my desire and my fervent prayer to God that I live long enough to see my children's children. Now, my father died four years before my twin sons were born, and so they never got an opportunity to have him in their lives. I believe that the early death of grandfathers is a generational curse because my maternal grandfather died three years before I was born. 
and he died of renal failure, which is kidney failure, which I attribute to his battling over the years with obesity and a form of type 2 diabetes. And so diabetes was on the way to knocking out my kidneys. My kidney function was greatly diminished when I went to the hospital. And only because of the change in my diet and the reversal of my type 2 diabetes, my kidneys weren't too far going to recover. And so my kidney function has made a huge comeback and my doctors are quite pleased with it. And I'm pleased because I don't want to spend the rest of my life on dialysis or even have to deal with the things you have to go through after you've had a kidney transplant. Anytime you transplant an organ, you have to take immunosuppressants to make sure that you don't reject the organ because it's not meant to be there. And so I'm happy that my kidneys are functioning and I can live my life day to day and use the bathroom on my own without having to go through all those issues. So back to the promise. I want to be the end of what I see as a generational curse. My grandfather did not live to see me in the world. My father did not live to see my sons in the world. I am determined to steer myself towards longevity so that I get to see my children's children. I want to be active in their lives. I want to do all the things that a grandfather is supposed to do. And so that's why I get up every day and eat the way that I do. I have committed myself to the ketogenic lifestyle. Now, I know that keto is a byword and people consider it a fad diet and a lot of people like to kick dirt on it. But what you cannot kick dirt on is my story. There is truth to what it is that I've experienced that no one can gainsay. I was morbidly obese and now I'm not. I was a type two diabetic and now I'm not. I was losing my vision and now I'm not. My kidneys were failing and now they're not. Awesome. And so what I do each day in terms of my eating, I make it a point to keep my daily intake of carbohydrates to 20 grams or less. I still have weight loss goals. I'm down from 350 pounds to, um, I believe right now I'm down to like around 235. My goal is to get down to 195. Wow. And when I get down to 195, I'll go on a maintenance form of keto where my daily intake of carbs will be around 35 grams a day. So I'll have a little bit more leeway in terms of the things that I eat, but I'll never go back to having French fries at Five Guys, and I'll never go back to having a stack of pancakes at IHOP, and I will never go back to having pasta and baked potatoes. There was a, I remember when I lived in Nashville, there was this place that I loved. Me and my colleagues would go at lunch to this place in Franklin, Tennessee, which is just south of Nashville. And they would serve these huge baked potatoes topped with a whole bunch of stuff. You could get bacon and cheese and chives and sour cream and either pulled pork or slabs of brisket or whatever. And for like $7, you could eat enough food to have you in a state of itis all afternoon. I'd sit at my desk and struggle to stay awake when I should be doing my work because I had this baked potato. 
that does not appeal to me anymore because what appeals to me is the idea of living into my 80s and not only having a long lifespan, but having a long health span. Too many Americans have long lifespans without decent health spans because they take a bunch of pills in order to keep them alive, but those pills don't help give them a good quality of life. Well, One of the things that I've learned is that one in three Americans, more than 120 million people in this country alone, are either diabetic or pre-diabetic, and those are just the people who've been diagnosed. There are easily half as many people walking around undiagnosed, so they're ticking time bombs and don't even know it. Yeah, let's talk about that, that word pre-diabetic, right? Because in preparing for the show, you know, I had heard the word pre-diabetic, right? And then, in addition, in prepping for the show, I stepped into some more words, such as insulin-resistant, pre-diabetic, and the symptoms often go hidden in the people who are pre-diabetic. Please tell us about that. What is pre-diabetic, and why do these symptoms go un- unseen or, un- you know, they're just kind of not there? You don't even know it's happening. Lastly... In reading your book, without telling everybody, because I want them to purchase a book, we're going to drop it in the chat a little later. To me, go ahead and drop it in the chat so people can know about it. But one thing I love this example you gave in your book is what your blood is like when you have too much sugar. When you, and it's the lemon you know, example. You mind giving that example of what bad blood looks like when you got too much, you know, um, when it's out of balance? And tell us about this thing called pre-diabetic. Okay. So the body is a marvel of self-protection. And it can go on for years dealing with and counterbalancing your bad behavior before it suffers a breakdown. And prediabetes is a perfect example of that. So you are doing damage to your body when you're prediabetic, but you're at a place where the, like you said, the signs and symptoms are not so acute, not so obvious that you feel like, oh God, I got to do something about this now. There is no danger Will Robinson moment. Now, for a healthy adult human, the amount of sugar that should be in your blood is roughly equivalent to a tablespoon, a teaspoon, excuse me, a teaspoon. And when you go to McDonald's, let's say, or Wendy's, and and let's say you go to McDonald's and you have a Big Mac value meal. So you just had a burger with three buns. You've had a medium or a large order of French fries. So that's an order of potatoes fried in industrial seed oil, which creates inflammation in your system because that seed oil is full of omega-6 fat, which puts your body out of balance with that. You're supposed to have a decent balance of what's called omega-3 fat, omega-3 fatty acids, and omega-6. Omega-6 is not bad in and of itself, but we eat so much of the things that put you out of balance and and make that ratio between omega-3 and omega-6 completely out of whack that it 
creates inflammation in the body that triggers things like cancer. Add on top of that burger and those fries a 20 or perhaps even 30 ounce soda that is full of sugar and not just sugar, high fructose corn syrup, which means that not only are you getting sugar, but you're getting 55% of that sugar in the form of fructose, which is a form of sugar that your body can process, but it can only be processed in your liver. So you might be a six foot tall, 220 pound man with cells all over your body that can process sucrose, which is half glucose and half fructose, but all of that fructose from that soda is being processed in your liver, which is the only place it can, and your liver is only three pounds. So you've got half of that incoming surge of sugar being processed by that small organ that you depend on to keep your body filtered and running properly and you overwhelm it and your liver becomes caked with fat. Anyone who's ever heard of the fancy dish called foie gras knows that basically that is fattened duck liver. So what they do to make foie gras is force feed ducks things that would cause its liver to get fatty. And what they force feed it basically is straight up carbs. And so one of the things that I uh, observed in the book is that ducks are smart enough not to eat until their livers get fatty like that. They have to be force fed that stuff in order to make their livers get to that level of fat so that we can enjoy foie gras. Humans don't have to be force fed in order to get to the state where we have fatty liver. There is such thing as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which affects a lot of people with type two diabetes. Because we continue to eat day after day the things that are going to overwhelm our liver and cause it to become caked with fat. And we don't stop because we're addicted to carbohydrates and we eat them and eat them and eat them. I know I was a carb addict and I'm glad that I have recovered. I'm glad that I have reversed my non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and my body can process food in a way that makes sense for me. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, excuse me, I can tell you've spent some time understanding these things. One of the things I learned in um, reading your book is at the core, you're intellectual. And as an intellectual, you kept searching until you found the solution. I'm a nerd. You're a nerd? (laughs) Nerd? Okay. (laughs) That you kept searching until you found solutions that made sense for you. Because the other stuff didn't make sense. So for other people out there, if you may not be picking up what he's putting down, it's okay. Because there's a different way to get to the finish line. The example he gave in his book that really rang true for me was that when your blood gets so caked with sugar, it's equivalent or like spilling a jar of a cup of lemonade on the floor. And then it dries and it gets sticky. Now, something about wasting some sugary drink on the floor. Everybody know how sticky and how gooey that it is. 
imagine that sticky and gooeyness being in your blood. Well, it's hard for anybody to get anything done when the floor is sticky. Imagine that being in your blood system. But I love that example. Anything you want to mention on that? Yeah. I used another illustration in describing why it is that I had the stroke last year. And as diabetes begins to do damage to your blood vessels, the blood itself begins to form what's called AGEs, which are advanced glycation end products. So the more carbohydrates there are in your blood, your red blood cells and white blood cells glycate. And so they turn into a form that is not in the form that they're supposed to be. And they have a tendency, like he said, like a floor with lemonade or punch stuck to it. They stick together and form bunches that can then turn into clots. And your blood vessels, especially your capillaries, which are the smallest of your blood vessels, are designed for the blood cells to go through in a single file line. Much like students on a field trip going to the local museum. Yeah, like the, the ones in your eyes, when right? When they become glycated, there's havoc in the line to leave the museum and get back on the school bus. And all hell breaks loose. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the upside. I I know you definitely did a good job losing weight. And I love the story you shared about how you begin to lose weight. The example you gave of the slingshot. OMG, right? Tell us about the slingshot and why people struggle to lose weight based on your slingshot example. Okay. So... We have for decades been hearing about yo-yo dieting. And I believe that yo-yo is a poor illustration of what happens when you diet. Because I played with enough yo-yos as a kid to know that when you release the yo-yo to the ground and it reaches the end of the string, the disc will return to your hand, but it will only go so far as the palm of your hand before you release it again and it goes back to the ground. What happens with dieters, especially people who diet by lowering the amount of calories that they um, eat during the day, calorie restriction is called, it's more like a slingshot. So as you reduce the amount of calories you're taking in, you're pulling back on the rock that's in the slingshot and you're pulling against the elastic band that is the working part of the slingshot. And unlike the yo-yo, where like I said, the disc only goes back as far as the palm of your hand, when you do like I was doing when I was doing all that exercise and things and reducing the amount of calories I was taking in, you pull back and pull back until you get to a point where you can't pull back anymore. You can't reduce your calories anymore. You can't work out anymore. You, you don't have any more energy. You don't have any more time to be in the gym. And so you stop losing weight and you get frustrated at where you are and you give up and you let go. 
but when you let go, the rubber band or the elastic snaps back to its original position. But what happens to the rock, which is your body weight? You put all that time and energy and effort into moving that rock. And when you let go of it, it not only moves back to its original position, but the momentum from the recoil of the elastic forces the rock to fly out far further than its original position and you end up losing it in the tall grass. So you then have to go on a search to find the rock in order to just replace it in the slingshot, let alone be able to start pulling it back again and trying again to get it to the position you want it to be in. So over the course of my life, I have done countless diets. I have done Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig. I did a, a, a liquid fast diet one time called MetaFast. I've done the cabbage diet, the lemon diet. I've done the Master Cleanse, where you eat the, where you drink the lemonade with the um, maple syrup and the cayenne pepper in it. Made most famous by Beyonce, who did that one time and lost a bunch of weight. There was one time I did the master cleanse, and the only thing I put in my body for an entire month, I went 30 days doing nothing but drinking the master cleanse lemonade. And I did lose weight, but the instant I put regular food in my mouth after that, because of the changes I made in my body and its reaction to me eating that, I gained every bit of the weight that I lost back plus some. So my slingshot was in full effect. I had pulled back on my rock during those 31 days of eating according to the master plans. And as soon as I let it go and had my first White Castle burgers, my weight shot right back past where I started. And the pants that I was wearing when I started master plans didn't even fit. They were too small. Wow. So it seems like lifestyle change is the only option. Let's do some questions because we're at the top of the hour. So thank you for sharing, um, DJ, your story. <clears throat> we're putting it in the chat where people can find your book and be inspired by more detail. We shared some stories, but we didn't share them all. The book is filled with a real life testimony of a person who struggled not only with weight, but diabetes and also putting it out there, some personal image concerns. There's an awesome opportunity and testimony in this book. It's on Amazon. You can buy the printed copy, the digital copy. But let's do some questions. And I got some questions because I know people like to get shy, but, you know, I, I ain't going to let y'all be shy. Let's talk about some questions from the audience. And um, Tamika, what questions do we have from the audience? Um, I see a few people have dropped in. I see Ms. Uh, Nia dropped in. Thank you for dropping in. For the audience online, what question? Actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with an open discussion while you guys think about your questions. Audience discussion. As we begin to wrap up, let's talk about mindfulness and eating. I'm calling it. And let's think about the community in which we live. Why do we think it's so hard for many people like us 
to be mindful of the things they eat. Open discussion. What do you think? Brother Rudy, I just recognize you, Rude Dog. High school football player. What's up, Rudy? Well, one of the... Okay, there we go. Talk about in the book uh, about what shaped my relationship towards food is what I was taught growing up. I come from a family of fat people who love food, love to cook, love to eat, and show love by cooking and preparing food. Mm -hmm. So that was a part of who I was for my entire life. And I grew up and I got to the point where I loved to cook and got pretty good at it. Awesome. Thank you, DJ. And I think Rudy was getting ready to say something. Go ahead, Rudy. We can hear you now. I think you're off mute. Okay. Uh, Well, what happened, what I think is like you had mentioned our community and, um, you, you know, the uh, influence of our community it does um i mean like i live in san antonio and and, and it's predominantly predominantly hispanic um i mean everywhere you go there's there's tacos tacos everywhere what are we going to eat for breakfast tacos what are you going to eat for lunch uh tacos uh dinner tacos uh mexican food let's um you know all of that is is it's a you know, it, it, it takes a lot of uh, willpower in the inside to say, hey, well, you know, I can't eat tacos again. I can't I can't do that again. Uh, I need to eat something else. Um, you know, and, and the thing about it is it, it, it's everywhere. I mean, literally everywhere. And I mean, there's there's upscale restaurants that are Mexican and it, it's the same food just put on a nicer plate. And it, it's it's. Uh, our communities, you know, and until our communities take some responsibility and, you know, promote something more healthier for us, it, it takes us to have the willpower to say no. Well, thank you for sharing that, Rudy. Um, um, Katie, I see That's you. A beautiful sentiment, but you cannot do it if you don't know to do it. You cannot do what you don't know. He's alluding to his book. And if if mom and them aren't giving you good advice and your doctors aren't giving you good advice, after a while, you will give in to the messages that you're inundated with from TV and everywhere else you go from the people who want to sell you tacos and burgers and pizza and fried chicken. Yeah, I love in your book how you you mentioned the what happens when a person reaches that point where they've been trying for a really long time right yeah hold, hold, hold tight dj what else we got K- katie what do you got sure um nia mensa asked a question um first of all she said thank you nia i'll go ahead and ask your question for you um how do you change the culture in family dinners to be more healthy um i come from a similar family and we love to eat classic soul food with all the fixings is what nia says so what are your suggestions for that go ahead dj you got to take Madonna's advice when she said, Papa, don't preach. Don't preach to your family because they are going to tune you out. You just have to be an avatar for what it is that you want to see happen with your family. 
one of the things that I've discovered is that as my family began to see me drop pounds, as they began to hear my story of how I reversed my diabetes and I'm not going to end up like a bunch of my aunts and uncles on dialysis or losing a foot, they're like, hey, that keto thing must really be something, something real and something promising. And so now I'm beginning to get my cousins and my aunts and uncles ask me questions. And because they are coming to me, they are much more receptive than if I had sat at the Thanksgiving dinner table saying, you really shouldn't be eating that, or why are we having this? Mm-hmm. All they would do is dismiss me. And so all I had to do was wait. And now they're coming to me. And, you know, I am reluctant to put myself anywhere near the place of Jesus, but I have people wanting to come and um, get coaching from me. My own mama, who um, for years, I, I could not get her to stick with anything. She is like, you're my personal coach now. Um, I call you up to, to ask you, should I be eating this? She'll call me on a random Wednesday morning and be like, listen, I'm getting ready to have this. Is, is this keto? And I'll go, well, Ma, you know, you probably should try this instead of that. Um, I won't say that that's bad because nothing in and of itself is bad. But if you desire to reach this goal or that goal, then you might want to try this instead. And that's how I roll with them. Thanks, DJ. So, you know, just 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 be what you want to see in your family, and they'll come around. They'll see your example, and they'll follow you. Thanks, DJ. Uh, another uh, group question while we um, allow the audience to present questions. So one of the things I observed is what I consider to be people who believe in some form of common sense eating. And first, let me say I'll commend you on working with family because the worst people on the planet to try to change in front of is family. Family can be the worst. Lord knows I've tried talking to many, many family members. and They look at me like I'm some alien. Right. But I commend you because, as you say, it's something about your testimony that people cannot deny. You can talk all day and they just going to battle you with whatever they got in the back of their head. But your testimony is something different. Another group question for the common sense eaters out there. How has food, calories, and serving sizes changed in the last 30 years? For example, orange juice. Y'all remember back in the day, we, they used to give us small cups of orange juice? Now what size cups of our orange juice come in? Especially if you get it at home. Or... My favorite example, a slice of cake. Back in the day, a slice of cake was a slice of cake. Now, if you go to one of these gourmet cake shops, a slice of cake can be a whole meal. What does the audience think? How has the food servings provided to us, restaurants, dining, fine places, how has that changed over the last 30 plus years? Yeah, A standard serving of soda used to be a 9-ounce can, and then it went to 12 ounces. And now most places when you go to get a meal, they serve you soda 
in a container that's as big as 48 ounces so you can get a good portion of a two liter bottle of soda in a personal cup that you're supposed to drink along with the meal in one sitting. When you get a super big gulp, that is a, what is, how big is that? Uh, 50 or 60 something ounces yep. of soda. That's nothing but a stream of sugar into your bloodstream. And you're going to spend the rest of the day and probably most of the next day in fat storage mode because you have created so much insulin in your system that no matter what you do, your body is not going to bring that level of blood sugar down until it is brought you down into reactive hypoglycemia, which means that you crash. And that's what happens to a lot of people. You eat a lot of junk um, that's high in sugar, high in carbs, and it uh, hits your reward centers and you're up for a little while, but then because you have caused so much insulin to flood your bloodstream to bring down the level of sugar in your blood because past a certain amount, sugar in your blood is poisonous, it's dangerous. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Who else? Anyone? Let's do one last, you know, audience question before we wrap up tonight. Thank you, guys. I know we've gone a little long, but this is a very important topic. And we have a very, you know, you know, a, a nice audience tonight. That's what I consider just an open, good dialogue audience. What else we got, Katie? You know, I, I've got a good I think it's a decent comment. Um, you asked about how things have changed in the past. One of the things that I've noticed is that no matter what kind of restaurant you go out to, there is a kid's menu. And that kid's menu, you could be at a Chinese restaurant, you could be at an Italian restaurant, you could be at a Vietnamese restaurant. They will have chicken fingers and French fries for your child to eat. It doesn't matter what kind of restaurant you're at. And so in allowing our children to become used to that kind of garbage, we are setting them up for failure later in life is something that I truly believe. So I'd love to hear, um, I'd love to hear our guests comment on that. You know, how is it that we, you know, in terms of helping our children develop um, good eating habits, what are the things that we can do to support that? And what are some things that we do to sabotage that? So at the end of the day, kids don't work, right? They don't have a salary to buy groceries. Yeah, that's an awesome statement, Katie. And and, and DJ. A, that uh, is a vitally important point. Calvin, when you and I were children, they used the terms juvenile diabetes and adult onset diabetes because anybody in elementary school who had diabetes, they were what we would now call type 1 diabetes. It was genetic. There was nobody under the age of, say, 60 who had type 2 diabetes or the kind of diabetes that you get from lifestyle choices. But they switched from juvenile diabetes and adult onset diabetes to type 1 and type 2, specifically because they started to see an influx of children in clinical situations having type 2 diabetes. 
they, it's no longer adult onset. You get kids eight, nine, ten years old with obesity and insulin resistance and type two diabetes because of the things they're eating. Chicken fingers, french fries, like you said, drinking a whole bunch of soda, drinking a whole bunch of fruit juice, and all these things that keep your blood sugar sky high, keep your insulin sky high. And so the fact that we had to change the language to accommodate what we're seeing in the real world means that she is absolutely right. Children are being set up for failure. I know I was one of those children. By the time I graduated from elementary school, I was already what you would call clinically obese and well on my way to type two diabetes if I hadn't reached there already. And so it's my understanding that we need to completely revamp the food pyramid that the government puts out. We need to revamp the way we think about what vegetables are and how we set up a, a meal plan and how do we set up a plate. Mm-hmm. And this inordinate fear of fat that we've developed over the past 40 years has been hugely detrimental to us. We were told by a researcher named Ansel Keys, who did this famous study called the Seven Country Study, that fat was the precursor to coronary artery disease and coronary heart disease. And what we only learned later was that Ansel Keys cooked the data by purposely leaving out the data points that did not agree with his preconceived hypothesis. So he had an idea of what he thought was the cause of coronary artery disease. And he fudged his data so that the data would fit his ideas instead of going with what science is supposed to be, which is when you learn something new, which is that fat wasn't the culprit, but sugar was, then you report what it is that you see in the evidence. He did not do that. And we have been bearing the brunt of that scientific um, lack of professionalism for the past 40 years. The whole anti-fat, low-fat, Thing that started in the late 70s and early 80s that allowed manufacturers to stop putting fat in but sneak a whole bunch of sugar in in order to keep their products palatable to the average American is what sent us on this crazy trajectory towards the epidemic that we're seeing now. Now, I know that COVID is serious. It is an epidemic. It's a global pandemic. It's an epidemic. But the true epidemic that we're facing that is gone unremarked upon is the diabetes, obesity, insulin resistance pandemic. Because each year we spend Well, in 2019, I believe it was the last number that I have, we spent $327 billion 
to treat diabetes and related ailments. And diabetes as of 2020 was the seventh leading cause of death in the United States. It's my desire and my mission with the book and some other things that I'm doing to make sure that diabetes falls out of the top 10 and never returns. Because we can do it. It's not like cancer where we don't really understand what yeah, cancer is. That's true. We don't understand how you get it. We don't understand fully how it kicks off. You're right. So we haven't been able to figure out a way to cure it. Yeah, you're right. We understand diabetes. What kicks off diabetes, we know how to cure it, which is what allowed me, a layperson, to cure mine by changing the way I eat. And I know a whole bunch of other people who have done the same thing. I'm part of a group on Clubhouse. We meet most mornings at 7 a.m. and we talk about how keto saved our life. Well, it saved our lives, and and I am a living witness that keto did save my life. I am a believer that I will live long enough to see my children's children and be part of their lives, because the things that I was doing to put myself in an early grave, I stopped. Awesome. It was all under my control. I just did not know it. Awesome. Thank you, brother. Thank you, DJ Jones, for being here tonight. Thank you guys for coming out tonight and listening to this opportunity. We're going to share that link in the chat again so you guys can find the book and get the details behind why this man is so passionate about his story, his experience in conquering and defeating diabetes. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for a discussion with the audience.